0: Episode. As always, apologize for the delays. Uh, we're going to change things up a little bit here and take a break from the vagueness of provisionism series to do what I'm going to call, or start calling, uh, Twitter fun episodes, where I'm just going to go through some of the interactions I've had on Twitter. I know when some of you hear Twitter, you think, "Wow, it's what a waste of time, nothing but trolls." And while that's true, can be a waste of time. I tend to try to pick my spots on Twitter very carefully. And I only invest time engaging with people if I consider them to be worth the time, or if I consider that my tweet might contribute to a particular discussion that more people might see it. And so what we're going to go through and do here are cover a wide range of topics that I've been engaging with on Twitter, topics that I want you guys to know about. I want you guys to have answers for, arguments that I want you guys to be able to respond to, you know, nuances and distinct distinguishing between various categories and everything like that, I think it's going to serve a, a pretty good purpose and be a lot of fun. So always welcome your feedback on YouTube and Twitter. If, the, if you're not following on Twitter yet, it's at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism. And so with that said, let's just go ahead and jump in. So the first tweet I'd like to get into uh, is a tweet from provisionist perspective, and they, they are quoting somebody else here, but obviously they agree with it. And it basically says, if Calvinism is true, one could throw bananas at the lost or sing the national anthem of Bangladesh and Swahili, and it would have the same effect upon the lost as praying, witnessing, or hearing the gospel. Okay. So my, my first point here is a lot of people, again, they, they falsely assume that the only intention that God has in the gospel reaching the ears of an of an unbeliever is that they be saved, that that can be the only intention that God could possibly have in the preaching of the gospel. But it's my opinion that the Bible puts forth the fact that the gospel um, will harden and cause people to stumble as well, right? So we have to ask ourselves a question, what is the ultimate difference, right? You have a bunch of lost people. They all hear the gospel, right? What is the difference between one stumbling and one not stumbling, one accepting it and one rejecting it? And it could just comes back to the the age-old difference in our entire worldviews, and that is that the Calvinist says that the difference is found in God who changes their hearts so that they will positively respond. Whereas the sinner, when left to themselves, will always negatively respond, okay? So again, the question isn't, is theres is there a response or not? The question is, is the response a positive or negative response? And what I point out, and that's not fun to point out, but you have to point out the fact that the gospel hardens unbelievers as well. And so you have to ask yourself a question, right? Especially Calvinists, but everybody, even, even the non-Calvinists, God is going to send the gospel to people, either as a Calvinist to a reprobate whom he has determined will never accept it, or as a non-Calvinist, you still have God sending the gospel to people he knows will never accept it and will always reject it. So you have to ask yourself a question. What is God's intention in doing so? And it's my opinion that the Calvinist is the only one that has an answer to that question that doesn't assault the wisdom of God. Okay? So we'll cover the Calvinist one first. That is that the reprobate exists. God has determined that there will be people who will spend their entire lives in rebellion and perish. Okay. So why does he send the gospel to those people? Right. And the Calvinist answer as non fun as it is, is to say that God's intention is not that they be saved. God's intention is that they be further hardened. It increases their condemnation. It heaps coals upon their heads, right? Increases their judgment, right? That might not be fun to talk about, but at least we have a valid, logical, sufficient answer That doesn't threaten the wisdom of God because God God is not now doing something unwise or I would even say blatantly stupid by intending one thing that he knows will fail, right? As a Calvinist, my view has God's intentions never failing. My view has God's purposes never failing, right? Even when we're talking about, or especially when we're talking about the preaching of the gospel. But now let's consider the non-Calvinist view. You have God sending the gospel to millions of people whom he knows with certainty will never accept it. So there's just a couple questions, several questions. What's the point of doing that? If God knows they're not going to accept it, why bother? Trying, right? I can take this fatalistic attitude, sort of, and throw it back on on the non-Calvinist. If God knows that they're never going to accept the gospel, why preach it to them? I think you'll have a tough time answering that question, because you're going to have to admit that the why God preaches it to them can't possibly be to save them. He knows they're not going to be saved, Right. And then you have to ask the question, would not hearing the gospel and rejecting it multiple times throughout their life increase their condemnation? Unless you're just going to be one of those people who says, well, Jesus paid for everybody's sins except the sin of unbelief. So the only thing people suffer for in hell is, is the sin of unbelief, which is a contradiction in and of itself. Because if Jesus paid for everybody's sins and unbelief is a sin, that would have been paid for as well. And it also contradicts several biblical passages where even Jesus himself talks, talks about degrees of judgment you know, the greater sin, this, that, and the other. But really, why would you, why would God increase, willingly and knowingly, increase the condemnation of somebody by sending them the gospel he knows they will continually reject? So you you have to make up your mind. Either God's intention didn't fail, and the effect that results from sending the gospel to somebody he knows will never accept it is part of his intention to increase their condemnation, or because you don't like that, You have to assault the wisdom of God by saying that God is intending to do something that he knows won't happen. Now, I'm going to uh, also review a couple of interactions I had with other people on that thread as well. Somebody says, uh, Well, what's wrong with the example? And I said, Everything. The gospel will harden the lost apart from God's grace. How would bananas or singing the national anthem have the quote unquote same effect? Because that's what the argument was. This person says, I'm familiar with total inability. But, the, but this idea of even further hardening by the gospel is a new one for me. What's the proof text you use for this one? To which I say First Peter two eight describes it as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is the effect that the gospel has on fallen hearts apart from God's grace. And I just want to stop here because this brings up something that I've I've been arguing with people over uh, on Twitter a lot recently. And that is this idea that, you know, I think Leighton Flowers is really the one who (laughs) perpetuates this, and that is this false idea that what total depravity means is that you're born already hardened, okay? I challenge anyone to find a definition of total depravity that says you're born already hardened, okay? You won't find it. What you'll find is that you're born in such a state whereby you will harden yourself against the things of God, and that's the entire point here. The point isn't that you're born already hardened to, for example, the gospel, you haven't even heard the gospel yet. When you're talking about hardening, you need a reference point. What are you hardened against, right? The point here is that you're born with a nature which will harden itself, right? That the natural response of a fallen sinful heart to the things of God is to harden themselves. And of course, there can be degrees of hardening. In fact, I'm going to hop over a little further here to another tweet that happened um, around the same time from Provisions perspective. And they say, Either total depravity is total, or it isn't. All these folks talking about degrees of hardening and blindness, that's our position, not yours. To which I said, dude, what are you even talking about here? The word total refers to the totality of our being. Again, this will, this is verifiable by, by any definition of total depravity that you can find. I'm not gonna I'm not going to go through them. This is supposed to be a rapid fire type of thing. But I said the word total refers to the totality of our being, not the degree of our hardening, also, where did Calvinism ever teach that people are born as hardened as they can be? That's your own made up false assumption regarding our position. Continuing on, uh, Providious perspective responded by saying, I'm saying that if your total, if your depravity is total, such that you are unable to believe, further hardening or blindness is unnecessary. We literally just talked about this yesterday. To which I said, also, I'm going to continue asking for the quote, where you saw total depravity defined as born as hard as, as hardened as can be. And before I go on here, um, Here's the point guys. We're talking about the nature of, of a fallen sinner Over against their reaction to the things of God. Okay So one of the ways I like to one of the I don't use analogies too often But but when I do use them, I think I try really hard to make them good analogies So if you consider the difference in the contrast of clay and wax clay by nature of being clay will harden itself, or you could say be hardened by the sun when it is exposed to it, okay? So there's something inherent in the nature of clay that causes this result to come about, and clearly there are degrees of hardening, right? It can become harder and harder and harder and harder. Likewise, wax by nature will soften when exposed to the sun, right? It is by nature, this is what happens, and it can become softer and softer and softer as well. So the point here is that total depravity teaches that we are born clay. We are born as something that by nature will harden itself. And that nature needs to be changed by a miraculous, supernatural working of God's grace, regeneration, the changing of our hearts. We need to be changed from clay into wax. So that the same sun, that same God, that same truth, same gospel, will now begin to soften us rather than harden us. Okay, now I think that's a pretty good analogy to demonstrate what's really being said about about the relationship of total depravity and the idea of hardening, how Calvinists have all the room in the world for degrees of hardening, okay? and I don't remember anybody ever saying, apart from non-Calvinists like Leighton Flowers, pre- pretending it's an argument, Calvinists never say that you're born as hard as you can be, or that you're born already hardened to the gospel, something you haven't encountered yet. No, the point is that you are born as a fallen sinner who by nature will harden themselves. So when they try to contrast... They say, that well, our position is the one that has degrees of hardening, not yours. Well, you're just demonstrating you don't understand the basic concept of total depravity. So continue on. They say, with respect, I'm not going searching for a quote supporting a main tenet of theological Calvinism. Well, if you did go searching, you would find that that's not part of the definition or concept, right? There's a relationship between total depravity and hardening, but total depravity is never taught that you're born already hardened or as hard as you can be. So he says the unregenerate are unable to willingly believe the gospel, to which I say the unregenerate are unable to willingly believe the gospel because they hate the things of God and love their sin. Their rejection of the things of God is the very hardening that you claim is already there and to the max. And then unfortunately he started a Twitter space and I was definitely not in a position to be able to do that. So we didn't have that conversation. Hopefully it'll have it someday. But I hope you guys can see how important of a point that is and I hope that you guys can use that in your arguments and your conversations in the future and properly understand the relationship of total depravity and hardening. Okay. You're not born already hardened as hard, as hard as you can be. You are born as a fallen sinner who will harden themselves by nature. That's what your, your natural response, just like the clay is hardened against the sun until it's changed into wax and then it's softened. And by the way, there can be degrees of softening as well, right? This is what sanctification is, right? Sanctification and growth is becoming more and more softened to the things of God. And just really quickly I dug up another thread, same topic, but sort of a different just a slightly different route. Again, Provision's Perspective says, is actually quoting the tweet we just went over later, two days later, and saying, for those Calvinist bros who engaged with this tweet, what is it you think we were arguing? I don't know what anyone I don't know that anyone has understood us yet. To which I said, you think what Leighton Flowers thinks. That total depravity equals born already hardened to the max against the things of God. They said, that's not precisely the argument, but it's close. To which I said, spiritually dead is the nature we're born with. Hardening is the effect that the things of God has on such a nature. Does that clear things up? They said, I understood most of your claims and arguments. Not sure you've understood mine yet. Now, I found that interesting because they started off a couple days prior by saying that Calvinism teaches that you're born already hardened, and therefore, hardening and blinding is redundant. Well, if you understood most of our claims and arguments, you never would have said that to begin with. In fact, looking at what I just said here, I was thinking ahead. That's exactly what I said. Your argument that hardening is redundant doesn't work against what I just said. And then they said, can you elaborate on what you think we mean by hardening is redundant? Be as specific as you can. Well, I think I've done that here. And it's, just, it's, it's an argument that doesn't work. Okay? Hardening is not redundant, because there's degrees of hardening, which can result in degrees of judgment, which can be used in, vari- used in various ways by God, as we've seen with, you know, biblical cases like Pharaoh, King of Assyria, King Sion, etc. So we're gonna move on from here. Now, returning sort of to the this whole idea of what power does the gospel have, got into an interesting conversation with a few people on this one. I quoted retweeted and quoted a tweet here where somebody says that the gospel is the weakest force on earth in Calvinism That was literally their tweet That that short little sentence there the gospel is the weakest for, force on earth in Calvinism To which I said Calvinism is the view with a powerful gospel. We believe it both softens and hardens hearts according to God's intention and purpose and it never fails to accomplish those purposes in your view the gospel is only as powerful as the almighty creature allows it to be. Which is the next sort of point I wanted to make about this whole idea of, well, throwing bananas have the same effect, etc. How can that not be flipped back on you? If the ultimate decisive factor is the almighty free will of man, then if, an, if somebody is using their free will to reject the gospel, and in fact that's all they're ever going to do, we talked earlier about God knows there's people, that's, that's all they're ever going to do, then couldn't you just say, that throwing bananas and preaching the gospel have the same effect, right? They're, they're, they're going to spend their whole life rejecting it, and they're going to end up in hell either way. And this is the problem with this sort of fatalistic language, is it just it completely ignores the means to the ends and just talks about the ends and says, well, therefore, whatever means you throw at it is irrelevant, which has always been a, a fallacious argument. So when I said that uh, gospel... As power only in Calvinism, we, we believe it both softens and hardens courts according to God's purposes. Those purposes don't fail. Your view of the gospel is only as powerful as the Almighty Creature allows it to be. This person says, how does the gospel harden the hearts of dead people? So this is another um, very important misconception that a, a lot of people run with. And unfortunately, a lot of Calvinists might get tripped up on. Uh, to which I respond, spiritual death, which is a moral category, does not mean no action. It means only bad action. Spiritually dead people will harden themselves against God. Dead is the condition. Hardened is the moral action. Don't conflate the two. And that's exactly what this person's doing. Right? So how can somebody who's spiritually dead be hardened by a gospel? Well, because spiritual death is a moral state. Spirit, You know, Satan is spiritually dead. The demons are spiritually dead. And yet they're still very spiritually active. They're all doing spiritually bad things. So spiritually dead people that's the condition, will harden themselves against the, the things of God, right? That is the moral action. Along these same lines, uh, I quoted Provisions Perspective when they said, Calvinists don't believe their own theology because they don't believe scripture is sufficient for repentant faith. I quoted that and said, I find it to be the epitome of irony that the side which has free will and control of whether or not the word of God has an effect on man's heart is going to talk about the sufficiency of scripture. Provisionist perspective responds by saying, uh, which side is that? It's not ours. The question is not whether or not the word of God has an effect, but what effect it has. Well, I think that's a great point. So let's get to the bottom of that. I said, that's not your view, really? Isn't it just an influence, right? We went through several interactions and episodes previously where they talk about how sense-free will's true. There's no such thing as causal determinism, at least when it comes to you making choices. These things that are external to you are just influences, Right? They don't have any actual power over you. Right? So here he is saying the question is not whether or not the word of God has an effect, but what effect. Yeah, what effect does it have on the free will of the person? The heart of the person? You need to make up your mind. Isn't it just an influence? Right? I said it's it has no power of the will according to your view. That would be determinism, remember? And that's the point is they don't believe the gospel has power over the will of man. That would be a violation of the concept of libertarian free will by definition. So I found it very interesting that they're going to t- try to sit here and pretend that the gospel is powerful in their view and that it has this some, some sort of effect. Well, what, what effect? Let's see if we get that answer. They said, that's because you think for anything to have a quote unquote effect, it must be the decision or the choice itself. To which I said, either one, influences have power over the will, or two, influences do not have power over the will, which is it? And then Province perspective, uh, fortunately, he stopped responding at that point, Moving on to a, a tweet from uh, Late Flowers himself, Soteriology 101, um, sort of related. He quotes John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he says that does not mean that you're born a slave to sin. Uh, so, so he's doing a this does not equals. In other words, um, it's not saying what Calvinism saying. So truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin does not equal you're born a slave to sin. So you're inherently incapable of responding positively to the truth, which was sent to set sinners free. Now, I quoted that, and I said, actually, that's precisely what it means, okay? The moral category, which, when you're talking about being slave to sin, right? It's a moral category. The moral category deals with precisely how the sinner responds to truth, okay? The point is not, is there a response or not? The point is, what is the response? And when we talk about being unable to respond, we're talking about respond positively, okay? Again, moral inability, we've covered that many times before. So, the moral category deals precisely with how the sinner responds to truth. When left to themselves, it will always be a negative response, hence the idea of slavery. I also said your view can't articulate what slavery to sin actually means for the sinner's actions. And I would love to hear what the, what the provisionist or even any non Calvinist side would have to say about what slavery to sin actually entails, because the impression I have gotten, and I think based on the analogies that Leighton gives, such as, you know, drug addicts and this and that, is that their idea of slavery to sin is really being conflated with physical slavery. So when you're physically enslaved, you're enslaved whether or not you want to be. And so when you don't want to be enslaved anymore, you're still enslaved and you need help to escape that slavery and you can desire to be free even though you're not free, right? Because you're not understanding that you have to see the contrast between phys- the physical idea of slavery and the moral idea, okay? You're a physical slave whether or not you want to be. John eight thirty four, Jesus' own own words is teaching that that slavery to sin is a moral slavery. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, right, not just sins every now and then, but practices it, right. This concept of practicing sin is right, especially when used by John, is is really referring to unsaved people who are living in sin. It's not referring to the Christian battling their sin, right. So everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if you're practicing sin, it's because you want to. You're not being forced to against your will, right? You are a slave to sin precisely because you want to be. You're a slave to sin because you're practicing it, and it's what you want to be doing. And that perfectly encapsulates the whole point of slavery to sin. And notice, Jesus himself connects it to the actions. He grounds it in the actions of the person which is to, which is practicing sin, and it's my contention that people like Leighton Flowers can't actually articulate what slavery to sin means in those same, in that same way. If they try to and they go down that road and they say, well, it's because you're practicing sin, it's because you love your sin, it's because you hate the things of God and you want to be sinning, that's why you're a slave to sin. They can't come out and say that because that contradicts their entire view that poor slaves of sin can want to be set free. So stop stop painting slavery to sin. In the same light as physical slavery, which is, I'm, I'm enslaved whether or not I want to be. And I don't want to be enslaved anymore, so I need somebody to help me out. Now, the fact is that the reason you're a slave to sin is because you want to be sinning. Okay? So somebody responds to uh, my, my tweet, response to Leighton there, and says, quote-unquote, when left to themselves, how many times does it need to be said that we agree generally, but also believe God isn't leaving man to himself? And so, uh one of my buddies on Twitter, Johnny C, shout out to him. He says, he says, y'all's explanation of not being left to yourself is just word salad. You hear the gospel and then you're left to yourself to make the decision, which is entirely, entirely true. The decision is on your own because the spirit is not working on you. And this is their view, right? They want to talk a whole bunch about the things God's doing. He's, uh, he died on the cross and he inspired the gospel and now he sends the gospel and the gospel comes. And yeah, anybody can say that, Right. But the question is, what is God's work on the heart? And we've been touching on that in our recent series, The Vagueness of Provisionism, which we'll pick up with, you know, finish off on the next one. Uh, This person then responds by saying us, meaning what we say, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What you say is, your explanation is just word salad. And this is where I jumped in. I said, also, your weak claim that the gospel being presented and making faith in it or acceptance of it possible is what, quote unquote, the power of God into salvation, end quote, means could be applied to any presentation of any truth or lie, right? Saying it has, quote unquote, power because now people can believe it is laughable. And I stop here to sort of revisit the original tweet um, or this line of tweets. They all have this common theme of, well, what what power does the gospel have? Well, I can't count the number of times. I've had non-Calvinists say to me, the gospel has power because it enables people to believe. I got in a lengthy argument over somebody who just refused to accept the di- the difference and the distinction between natural ability and moral ability, right? And they kept saying, "No, no, no. In your view, the reprobate can't believe no matter what." Right? Can't believe no matter what, but in my view, the gospel enables them to believe when it when it comes upon them. And I pointed out, "No, look, actually that can be said by anybody, right? Saying the gospel has power and that it's enabling somebody to believe because now it's it's presented to them and now it's an option, right? Like that can be said of anything. That can be said of any truth, right? You can't quote unquote believe in something that you don't know about. That's just natural ability, right? You can't believe in something you don't know about even if you wanted to believe in it, right? So Calvinism has plenty of room for the gospel coming along and enabling somebody in the natural sense to be able to believe it because now it's an option, That's not addressing the actual moral ability of the person to accept it now that it's an option, right? And again, I said, saying it has power because now people can believe it is just laughable. This person said, I'm changing the subject. You talk about being left to oneself. I said, that's not the case. As long as you keep repeating it, you're misrepresenting your opponent. So I responded by saying what I said. I said that if God leaves a sinner to themselves, they will always respond negatively. And this person said they agree with that. Because what they're saying is, oh, we don't believe God leaves them to themselves, right? God is actually doing something. Okay, well, that's great. But if God did leave them to themselves, would they always respond negatively, right? And I think where they would come back and say is, well, if God left them to themselves, then the gospel would have never come, and you can't believe in what, you know, you can't believe unless a preacher sent, you can't believe in something that's, that hasn't crossed your path, etc., but then what you're doing is you're, you're throwing out the category of negative response, right? You're, you're completely throwing out response. And you're you're just saying, well, you can't respond, period, right, if God leaves you to yourself. What I'm saying is, no, if God, the gospel comes and God leaves them to themselves in terms of their hearts, not by not bringing the gospel, period, right? And so anyways, uh, that particular person was just convinced that that they had won the argument because they think that in their view... The gospel has power because it actually enables belief, makes it possible, and in the Calvinist view, it doesn't. And again, if the gospel coming as an option and enabling belief in that sense, everybody has that, right? Everybody has that. That's never been the argument or the debate. The debate is once the gospel's there and it is an option, what is the natural response of the sinner and what is required or necessary on God's part? Does God actually need to do a work on the heart? And of course, these people don't believe that. So next we have another tweet from Soteriology 101, Leighton Flowers, and we're changing a little bit of the topic here. This one deals with judicial hardening. So I quoted a tweet where he says, God can determine that an evil event comes to pass without being the one who determines the sinful intentions of those involved. I quoted that and I said, this is a them and also them sort of sarcasm. Them, God can determine an evil act without determining the evil intentions. Also them, Judicial hardening means God ensuring that people intend to sin even more. Awkward? And of course it is awkward, right? You don't get to say that God can determine evil actions without determining the intentions behind those actions, okay? And the case of Pharaoh is a prime example. How can you possibly say that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go and yet also not determining Pharaoh's sinful intentions and prideful intentions to not let the people go? right? That's by definition what heart hardening is. It deals with intentions, right? And in fact, digging into digging into the tweet that I, res- I actually went into his tweet and responded as well, I said, is not their sinful intentions part of what comes to pass? How can you separate that from what God determined to come to pass? I said, you have a lot of explaining to do, to which uh, Leighton says, God can know and use their intentions. It's really not that difficult. We've been over this many times together, to which I say, does not your article... And he quotes an article or cites an article in, uh, in the tweet there. I says, does not your article define judicial hardening as ensuring that people continue to intend evil for a time? Right. And I'd like to quote that article uh, under the subheading of hardening. To be, I'm going to start reading here. To be clear on this point, there are two kinds of hardening taught in scripture. Number one, self-hardening. This is where a moral, morally accountable person who is able to refrain or not refrain from a given moral action, contra-causally free, Grow stubborn or calloused in his own ways. Number two, judicial hardening. So here's the article that Leighton quotes, cites, and his definition of judicial hardening. This is God's active role in blinding an already rebellious person in their rebellion so as to prevent their repentance for a time. He says God's motive is always to accomplish a greater redemptive purpose. That's great. God's motive and intention, we would agree. In heart, hardening is always good, right? But listen. Judicial hardening is God's role in blinding an already rebellious person so as to prevent their repentance for a time. So that is what I had quoted. Does not your article define judicial hardening as ensuring, right? Preventing them from repenting. You're ensuring that people continue to intend evil for a period of time. So again, this is a direct contradiction. The article he cites is contradicting contradicting the very tweet he's citing it for. That God can determine an evil event to come to pass without being the one who determines the sinful intentions. If God is ensuring that people don't repent, right, <laughs> how is that not God determining their intentions to continue to sin? Right, and along these same lines of the idea of degrees of hardening, Soteriology 101, Leighton Flowers, has a tweet that says, Calvinists often give the caveat regarding total depravity that it doesn't mean that men are as bad as they could be, but they've erroneously gone to assume that it does mean men, men are born as spiritually blind or as deaf as, to the truth as they could be, rather than, as Scripture explains, where those people's hearts become callous, etc., To which I say, incorrect. Calvinism has plenty of room for degrees of hardening and people blinding themselves to the truth as they encounter it. And we've already explained the error of, of this idea that total depravity means you're born already as spiritually dead or as blind as you can be. Provisionist Perspective jumps in and says, why though? Why blind somebody who's already completely blind? To which I said, who says they're already completely blind? Again, you need a reference point. The fallen sinners will close their eyes to the things of God as they encounter it, aka blind themselves. It's the moral category. It's not like physical blindness where they can want to see, but are held back by being blind. They respond by saying, are they blind or partially blind? Can they see a little bit of the things of God or just a few? To which I say they can't see the things of God because their natural reaction to the things of God is to close their eyes. They don't want to see them. It's a moral action. Moral ability is not a limitation right? And that's exactly how they phrased it. Are they partially blind? Can they, can they see parts of it and just not others? Well, again, you're assuming that they can want to be seeing it. And that's the whole point here. Spiritual blindness is not like physical blindness. You can't conflate these things. And they, they say, so they aren't blind. They just choose to close their eyes. Even so, why blind a person whose eyes are always closed? Well, first of all, the Bible describes spiritual blindness as them closing their eyes, okay? So that's not, it's not, well, are they blind or closing their eyes? Spiritual blindness is the closing of your eyes to the truth. So even so, why blind a person whose eyes are always closed? I say because you need a reference point for the blinding, okay? I can't blind myself to a gospel I haven't heard yet. That's different than asking this general question, well, am I, quote unquote, spiritually blind? Again, blind to what? What have I closed my eyes to? Okay? So this is why this is where this mix up occurs when people like when Calvinists say, well, we're born spiritually dead and we're born spiritually blind, right? Well, again, that's the condition. And so what's the result of that condition to the things of God? Spiritually dead and spiritually blind people will harden their hearts and close their eyes to those truths. Now, Mind Trap jumps in here and says, here's an example of how this morphs. They are blind to the gospel. The gospel is a spiritual truth. They are dead in the spirit and cannot understand spiritual truths. Here the cannot is based on inability, not a refusal. So we, are we, so we are back to just being spiritually dead. And he's saying this sort of as a critique. And I said that my entire point is that their inability goes hand in hand with their refusal. They despise the things of God and are therefore unable to accept it, just as I might be unable to accept something I find to be illogical. And I think that's an important point. I've asked in previous episodes: Can somebody like Leighton Flowers just use their free will to be a Calvinist again? Right. That's that's an interesting question. Why don't you use your free will right now to reject provisionism and just be a Calvinist again? Okay. Can you do that? And it's impossible for you to answer that question without distinguishing between a natural faculty ability and a moral ability. You would say, "Well, I could be a Calvinist again if I wanted to be," right? It's not that you can't believe things like Calvinism in terms of the faculty of of just being able to believe things, right? If you wanted to, you could, but you don't want to, right? Because you find it to be illogical. So you can go on to say, actually, no, I can't believe Calvinism because I find it to be so illogical, right? So your your answer to that question actually demonstrates my position and my view perfectly. The difference between natural ability and moral ability. Trap also adds, even if we say that blindness is a willing ignorance of spiritual things so that they are actively closing their spiritual eyes, the reason is because they are spiritually dead, which makes it superficial distinction, which makes it a superficial distinction, willfully blind, totally blind, doesn't matter. And I say, well, how does, how does it not matter if closing their eyes is the natural reaction of a spiritually dead sinner? then what is the problem logically? And that's the point, right? These things go hand in hand. Now, this next topic deals with, you know, are children innocent? Uh, we'll cover this. I, I think this will have to have a its own episode eventually. I see that being inevitable. And we've sort of touched on it in our Bigness of provisions of series. But I just want to point to an example of a proof text faceplant. Okay. So here's Layton's tweet. He says, why does the inspired text call these children innocent? If there are no innocent children. Let me guess. There are two different kinds of innocence. Just like Calvinism, there's two kinds of wills and calls and love, etc. So as to make the view unfalsifiable. So what verse did he quote? Psalm 106, 38. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of, Can- of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. So I said, you realize that one of your biggest errors is assuming that because your child is innocent horizontally before you. That that automatically means that your child is innocent vertically before God, right? And that really is uh, one of the biggest problems. It's not just the idea of kids being innocent either. It's this this way that people take the relationships that we have horizontally to other people and other things. This this covers all sorts of categories, right? Whether it's loving our neighbor, whether it's forgiving, uh, whether it's controlling, you know, being in control of something or this or causation and all these sorts of things, responsibility. You're always, everybody always wants to take the horizontal relationship we have with people and project that onto the vertical relationship that we have to God. And so that's exactly what's going on here. Yes, the people in this verse sacrifice, they shed innocent blood, right? They killed their children. Their children were innocent before them and they sh- they killed them and are guilty of murder, right? Right. What is murder? Murder is the taking of innocent life. So by definition, that's killing somebody who's innocent before you, right? I mean, I can murder somebody who's clearly a guilty, spiritually dead, unsaved person, right? They're, they're guilty before God, right? And yet that doesn't mean that they're guilty before me. I can, quote unquote, murder them. I can take their innocent life because it's innocent before me horizontally, Right and be guilty of sin in the process, even though they're not innocent before God. So you can't conflate these two relationships. You can't conflate the relationship of your children being innocent before you and conclude therefore that they're innocent before God as well. Because if that were the case, then the only people it would be possible to murder logically would be children because children are the only ones who are innocent, right? (laughs) Of course, that's, that's not what's going on. And so I just wanted to point to this as a major face plant. Um, of using this verse to try to teach that children are born innocent. Okay? They're born innocent before you. Sure. That doesn't mean they're born innocent before God. Those are two completely different things. And not to be repetitive here, I just scrolled down and saw my, my additional tweet. I said, unless your claim that God's command, do not murder, only applies to not killing innocent children, then clearly I can be guilty of murdering someone who is innocent before me and yet still a sinner against God. So next we have just a quick little interesting question I wanted to ask of one of Leighton Flowers tweets. He's responding to Dr. White and he says that God will not stand on the brink of hell and apologize that he tried, but was unable to save the lost. Rather, he may say something like this all day long. He's quoting Romans ten twenty one. all day long. I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Right. So the point here is, you know, that man doesn't have excuse, et cetera. But I quoted that and I said, why not hold out his hand for all of eternity? Right. In your view. Free will ensures that everyone will eventually quote unquote fail and sin, right? That's why they would that's how they would say there's never been a sinless human. Oh, it's because everyone will eventually we covered that, you know, everyone eventually messes up. Uh whether he wants to you know, acknowledge having given those sorts of analogies and saying those sorts of things. I documented that in my first three episodes of The Vagueness of Provisionism. But if, in your view, free will ensures that everyone will eventually fail and sin, wouldn't an eternity eventually ensure that all would eventually repent? why close the doors for good if he truly desires their salvation? So my point's pretty simple here, guys. And this can be looked at from a lot of different angles. on this idea of if God really truly desires that everybody be saved, I just simply ask, as I've asked before, where is his effort? Now, don't don't get all emotional on me and say, oh, how dare you say that? He died on the cross and he's sending the gospel and isn't that good enough? And that's not my point. But my point is, if God is God, right? He's the all-wise, all-powerful God of the universe, and He has all these means at His disposal. He could send everybody their personal angel. U- use your imagination, right? He could keep He could keep everybody alive for an eternity, and just plead with them for eternity. Can try, you know, try to reason with them for eternity. Uh, why close the doors at a particular point? Is my question basically? If you really want everybody to end up saved, and you've got all of eternity to bring that about right? And isn't God patient? Isn't he waiting for us and begging us? And he just wants us all to be saved. Well, why not just wait for eternity? Everybody would eventually end up saved. So why not do that? That's all I'm asking. And just really quickly, before I go into the answers in the tweets, um, don't think that you can answer that by saying, well, there are particular people who just would never believe even given eternity because they've quote unquote, hardened themselves like too far. That concept, the concept of Progressive hardening, reaching a particular quote unquote point where it's just too far, that's determinism. Okay? That, that's not free will. If free will were true, then there should always be the possibility of going back the other direction. Right? And I, so I just, I throw that preemptively out there so that some of you might be thinking that that's an answer to my question here. It's not. Right? You, you actually can't answer the question without committing to a deterministic answer. But anyways, we've got some interesting answers. Provisionist Perspective said, because God's patience has a limit. To which I said, why? Why not save more people by being more patient? Right? I think that's a valid question. God's patience has a limit. Why not be more patient? Right? God is the limitless, eternal, infinite God. Why isn't his patience, quote unquote, infinite? And he says, and what? Let slash cause people to live forever? It could be argued that the longer we live, the more hardened and evil we become. And this would not be grace, but an evil. Now, I found this very interesting. I said that might be true for some, but you can't state that as a universal principle and also claim free will. That would contradict free will. My question has remained unanswered. And the reason I found this, this particular statement so entertaining is it's a contradiction of free will to say that the longer we live, the more hardened we become, right? That is, that is drawing a connection between your current state, the nature of your heart, and the future actions of your heart. Which, ironically, is exactly what Calvinism says. Calvinism says that people become more and more and more hardened when they're left to themselves, right? And I would actually agree that the longer we live, the more hardened and evil will we become with the qualification of apart from God's grace, right? So it's just, I find it very ironic that there's, they're giving a determinative answer that contradicts free will to my question, why doesn't God be more patient? He says, how did I not answer the question? I asked you what the purpose would be behind this, and gave you an argument to why this wouldn't be desirable. To which I said, "You said that God keeping evil people alive longer, so that they can do more evil, would be evil and not grace." You don't see the problem with that argument? He does that right here and now already. It's not an argument or an answer, answer at all. And so I was just basically exposing the logic of his attempted answer, and that is to say. That, well, the longer we live, the more hardened and evil we become. And therefore, it wouldn't be gracious for God to keep us alive. It would be an evil. It would be wrong, right? He actually says it would be an evil for God to keep us alive longer so that we would be more evil and become more hardened. And I just simply point out he's already doing that, right? It's just on a shorter scale, right? He keeps sinners alive until they're in their 90s. And there are people who become hardened and more and more hardened and more and more evil and more and more sin. And so if you're going to say that doing that, that God doing that would be an evil, well, you have God being evil. Of course, you don't believe that. I'm just pointing out the inconsistency in the argument. And unfortunately, that was where that particular thread stopped. I didn't get any more answers. Now, I'd like to end this, per- this first edition of Twitter Fun by actually addressing a request I had on Twitter from somebody who wanted me to, to address the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is quite often brought up against Calvinists um, by playing you know, the word game with the, the word will. Well, why are you praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven if you believe his will is already being done on earth? Dun, dun, dun. Right? And this is obviously just uh, word games and a misunderstanding that the word will can be used of God's revealed commands. Right? He who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven. Clearly, God's commands. And it can also be used of God's will in terms of what is going to come to pass. Who resists his will? God works all things at the counsel of his will. So on and so on and so forth. So clearly the Lord's prayer, when we pray that God's will be done on, hev- on earth as it is in heaven, right, is speaking of the revealed will of God. Now, the provisionist perspective, um, brings this up. Um, they've done it before, but in this particular instance, they quote a Calvinist who sort of says, I love it when Christians who fight for free will pray not my will be done, but yours. The irony is sharp. So a little bit of a joke there. But as you're going to see, it raises an interesting point that I'm about to cover. Providious Perspective quotes that in response by saying, it's almost like God's will isn't always done in the world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I just pointed out why clearly the verse isn't talking about God's will of what should come to pass. It's talking about his revealed commands. But I go on to say, if you're praying because God's will isn't done, why are you praying to God about it? It's up to all us libertarianly free will creatures, isn't it? What are you asking God to do about it exactly? And so this is the point, guys. You notice, if we glimpse at the prayer real quick, um, thy kingdom come. Well, do you believe that's going to happen? Well, of course you do. And who's in the ultimate control of whether or not that happens? God is. And you pray to God, thy kingdom come, because you have confidence and assurity that he will bring that about. Right? Let's skip over to give us our daily bread. Right? Do you believe that God will continue to feed you, keep you alive? Right? And I pointed out in past episodes how we pray that God feed us, and we recognize that God feeds us. He, if he's going to feed the birds, he's going to feed us. And yet, he doesn't drop the food down out of heaven, right? We go to work, we pay our bills, we get buy the food, we cook the food. We are recognizing God's control over all these things, right? The next part of the prayer, forgive us our trespasses. Do you believe that's something God does? Well, of course you do. But notice, that's something God does. It's something that God has control over. God is the one who forgives our, of our trespasses, right? Lead us not into temptation. Now, we can argue about whether God actually does that. I believe he does, right? The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, right? God does lead us into temptation, and it's part of sanctification, right? It's not God being a big meanie. There's purpose behind it. But back to the point, if you're going to pray that God not lead you into temptation, well, you're praying to God about that because he's the one who either will or won't. He's got the control over it, right? Deliver us from evil. God's the one who does that. You're praying To God because you realize that he has control over that Okay, so notice We're going to come back to this will your will be done on earth Everything else in that prayer is your recognition of God's control over those various things That's why you're praying to God about it, right? So well now let's address God's will his revealed commands being done on earth If free will is true God is not in control of the actions of human beings and whether or not they obey his will why would you even pray to God about it, right? You're praying to the wrong person. You should be praying to the free will creatures, right? They're the ones who have the ultimate power, according to your the entire grounding and basis of your worldview. The free will creature holds the power and the ultimate determinative power of whether or not God's will will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven, right? That's your entire worldview. So what are you, ex- what are you praying to God about it for? What do you expect him to do? I mean, I'm sure God is grateful that you have his best interests in mind. I bet God is happy that you really hope his will will be done on earth as it, is, as, it is, as it is in heaven. But again, who is the one who's in ultimate control of that? So you see, the reason I throw this back on the free will side is because for you to bring this verse up to me, I would say that I'm the one who has the basis to be praying that in the first place, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because I believe that God can actually bring that about I'm the one who believes that God is working all things after the counsel of his will, including the actions of human beings, right? So I can pray, again, not knowing the future. And that's part of the reason for we pray these things. We don't know the future, but we hope for the future, right? I can pray through the entire prayer and recognize God's control over each and every aspect of it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. All of that, Calvinists can pray because we believe God has control over all of it. Doesn't mean our prayers are always answered. Doesn't mean his revealed will commands are always going to be obeyed right now. Doesn't mean I'm never going to go hungry. Doesn't mean I won't ever be led into temptation. But the point is, I can pray these things because I recognize God's control over all of them. But I find it very ironic that a libertarian free will proponent whose entire worldview is grounded in the fact that God's revealed commands are either done or not done according to the ultimate power of the creature is going to be praying to God that it be done. Okay. So, I hope you guys keep that in mind the next time somebody brings up the Lord's prayer against you as a Calvinist. It is very easily flipped back on them. It's it's one of the worst arguments I've ever come across and it just it's like pulling the pin on the grenade and throwing the pin instead of the grenade, right? You think you've got this great argument and you let you let it go. And you realize that you look down and you're still holding the nade because it blows up in your face. The argument, the prayer itself, is actually a refutation of your own view, right? It is something that you cannot consistently pray. And in fact, I imagine it not so much as pulling the pin on the nade and throwing the pin instead of the nade, but more like a toddler. Have you ever seen a toddler haul back and try to throw a ball? Well, they throw it so hard or they try to throw it so hard that their arm comes through and they leave the ball to drop right behind them. We've all seen that happen and laughed about it. Well, that's what's happening when people try to throw the Lord's Prayer at the Calvinist. They think they've got this amazing argument. They think it's so good. They throw it as hard as they can, but they follow through and they leave it right behind them to explode. So that's going to wrap it up for this. I think it's a nice little short little episode here to keep you guys going. I apologize for how long my episodes take to come out, but this year's starting off pretty well. And um, if I can have some business success, uh, looking at next year, going to have a lot more free time. Hopefully that's part of what I'm striving for, is to set myself up um, financially so that I can just do this full time. I'd prefer that over relying on donations and whatnot. Not that I wouldn't appreciate donations, but you know, if it can be done another way, that's just the road I'd like to go down, or at least try going down at first. So I want to get your guys' opinions on whether or not you think these Twitter fun quote-unquote Twitter fun episodes are are any good, Uh, should I keep doing them in the future, please leave comments on the YouTube video. Or you can hit me on Twitter at the letter C, Calvinism, at C, Calvinism, and let me know if you want to see more of these episodes as well where we just sort of go through various topics. Um, I'm not sure in the next episode. I plan to return and finish out the vagueness of provisionism, but depending on what happens on Twitter between now and then, I might just make another Twitter fun episode to sort of keep you guys going in the meantime. So again, I hope you found this episode beneficial. Look forward to hearing your guys' feedback and remember to stay consistent, my friends. I'll see you next time.